You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. Welcome back, everybody, to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Well, fellas, we just finished up with a super series covering the historical Reinhold Niebuhr. We read Dorian's biographical snapshot, then interviewed him. We interviewed Jeremy Sabella, read his biography on Niebuhr, then interviewed him again. Uh, This has been a deep dive. So let me start off just by asking you guys two questions just to get just help get our arms around what we just did. So first, what was your favorite episode we did in this series and why? And second, what would you say is the main thing you took from this series and hope to keep with you as we keep going down this Niebuhr rabbit trail. What do you think, Aaron? Oh, gosh. Um, So my favorite episode has to be, I really did enjoy the one with Professor Garadorian. I think that was great. And just the the sorts of um, at-hand knowledge he has of so many things is incredible and really enjoyed that. But I think as a conversation and dialogue partner, has to be Jeremy, uh, one of the yeah. interviews of Jeremy Sabella. And I, I don't think I can pick one of them because I think every single time we've had an interview, he's just been just so on point. Uh, on but I think the sort of theme that I took away is it's easy to like to read Niebuhr just dispassionately his, in his assesses arguments. But when you're able to put his uh, books into, con- into his context of where he's at, it's very, very enlightening. I mean, the, the whole topic on the nuclear age, the coming of America, being a nuclear power and situating uh, his work in that period um, within that context is something that I'm, I'm constantly thinking about. So, yeah. Good. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to go with that, that first interview we did with Jeremy. I think it was uh, really enlightening. And I think anytime we talk to Jeremy, it's pretty, uh, I mean, everybody else we've had on has been very awesome too i just think uh jeremy has got um he's really able to kind of speak to how niebuhr is applicable to today and how um and why we need him you know i mean why we, why we need to kind of revisit niebuhr um he's also just been a huge like encourager he's been he's encouraged us given us a lot of ideas on what we could do on the podcast um in terms of like a big takeaway for the series i mean i just i kind of come up with the same thing that i've come away with many times visiting Niebuhr and that is that our faith needs to influence that needs to impact how we look at justice in our community and how we like become or I should say that that we would become active that we would be pursuing good in our community and not just be kind of isolated to our faith community yeah yeah good between the interviews I thought it was difficult to compare them because they both kind of bring something unique to the table. Like what Aaron was talking about, Dorian has just this encyclopedic mind 
and can recall so much. We ended up like cutting or I ended up cutting like the last monologue he went on about Marxism in the time of of uh, of Niebuhr uh, when he wrote More Man and More Society. And this guy is just drawing from so many sources. I mean, he the dude, the dude is just insane, his ability to recall information. Um, so Doring was a lot of fun. But Jeremy, I agree with you guys. He has such a rare ability to channel the way Niebuhr thinks and and make it applicable. It's it's hard for me, but between the two, but I think that first interview we did with Jeremy was my favorite episode probably that we've ever done. He just mm-hmm. brought the project to life so much and he brought and continues to bring Niebuhr alive to me and to us uh, so much. It was just a fantastic discussion. Yeah. Now, the one thing that I'll, that I'll take away from the series and I hope that to have with me forever is I learned so much more about the stages of Niebuhr's life and how he progressed his thinking. I think both Dorian and Sabella, we get the strong sense that the 1930s were a huge kind of incubation period for Niebuhr's thought, for his for- formation. And it actually ge- gives me hope thinking about this time because um, he was around my age, maybe a little bit older, when he, just when he was starting to go through this rapid formation of his thought and discovering his voice. And I kind of weirdly feel a kinship with that. And it kind of makes me think I need to get myself going a little bit. Zach's been getting on me lately about publishing. But uh, and yeah, I kind of feel that now. And this is a prime time, you know, at this age. Um, Seems that in your late 30s to mid 40s, it's that time for a lot of people where they kind of nail down what they have to offer the world. And I think um, I have a fuller picture now of how that all came together for Niebuhr. And uh, it wasn't just him. It was his brother. It was Tillich. It was Bonhoeffer. Uh, it was the world events. You know, all these things kind of came together and crystallized to, to, to form his thought. It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I think this is maybe a good segue into what we'll be primarily covering in this episode, because uh, that time period of the 1930s where Niebuhr went through all this development very rapidly, the complete picture of Niebuhr's thought really begins to crest in the book that we're starting today, Beyond Tragedy. In Moral Man and Moral Society, that was Niebuhr launching into the, into the public consciousness with kind of this bitter rebuke of social gospelers. Then we get correspondences from his brother urging him to look more closely at the moral man part of his reasoning. So Niebuhr begins down this road of rediscovering the Christian doctrine of sin He's going to take one step closer with a big kind of sweeping examination of history and reflections on the end of an era. He's going to dive deep down into the heart of the individual and interpretation of Christian ethics. And then he's going to start pulling all these threads together about sin and grace in his work Beyond Tragedy. Beyond Tragedy is where we can start to see the fullness of his thinking. This is late 30s, and he's going to start pulling it all together. The book after this will be his magnum opus, The Nature and Destiny of Man, when he is comprehensive and systematic in his doctrine of sin. But here, I suppose we can call Beyond Tragedy his attempt to pull it all together, not so much systematically, but I suppose we could call it sermonically. It's mm-hmm. in, in many ways the artistic and exhortational version of what he will be attempting to do right after uh, right, right after this systematically. So in Beyond Tragedy, 
These are all what Niebuhr calls sermonic essays. It's a collection of sermonic essays. And at this point, I'd like to turn to Zach because Zach has uh, recently really kind of tried to infuse Niebuhr into his own sermon writing a bit. And he's even starting to call his own sermon sermonic essays. So it was like a sermonic essay turned back into a sermon, I guess. Um, But Zach, what would you say, first of all, what have you learned from this process of starting to write like Niebuhr, I guess, from the pulpit? And then how would you, I guess, describe what a sermonic essay is to our audience? I mean, the best word I can think of is synthesis. A lot of synthesis goes into a sermonic essay. Yeah. So maybe in a maybe I think the thing that would distinguish it from like a conventional sermon, like a um, um, like a expo- Ex- expository yeah, expository sermon. I think is the the big thing that would make a difference is that there would be a lot more I think analysis in an expository sermon, whereas I think that uh, Niebuhr, especially in his sermonic essays, uh, relies on a lot of synthesis so he's come up with an idea from the passage a, a main point a main idea that he wants to draw out from that co- from that text mm-hmm. and then he's taking it and applying it and and wrestling around with it in his dial- dialectical form of thinking um with different ideas from the time and so there's a lot more uh i would say like contextualization so there's a lot more um addressing current issues current things that are happening in the world then there would be maybe an expository sermon where you might talk a lot about the context of the passage and you might talk a lot about what's happening around the passage and what led to that. And then you might draw an application from that exposition. Whereas I think there's a lot more, uh, I, I think a sermonic essay requires a lot of synthesis. It requires you to do a lot of work, a lot of reading ahead of time, and then synthesize those ideas into a, um, an, an essay, you know what I mean? Like you would any other topic. Um, but it's, it's sermonic in the sense that it's still, there's still an element of exhortation in it. And there's still an element where it's dry. It's, you know, the, the preeminent thing that is driving is this biblical idea that's behind it. So, I mean, that, that maybe what I would say was, a, I think it's definitely difficult. I think the hardest part is the synthesis. I think that's been what I, my biggest challenge is. It's a lot harder when you spend a lot of your sermon doing a lot of analysis and giving people the analysis of a text and what the text means and Instead of just saying, Here, here's what the text means, and now we're going to talk about what that means for us. It's so that that's kind of the transition I see, or the difference I see between the two. Um, yeah, good. I think a lot of times the sermons that we hear um, are, maybe we call them deductive, like one truth in scripture plus another truth in scripture, and we get, you know, a conclusion um, or something like that. You might spend a lot of time arguing for why that passage means what it means. You yes. Know, you know, stating, you know, different opinions, and and that's you know, I think a sermonic essay has the potential to be a lot more impactful just in the sense that it is, it's taking the application very seriously and the analysis of the passage is being done beforehand. And so, you know, and that can have its good and bad elements, you know what I mean? Um, as long as you, I think, do that work beforehand, I think that's the the key. Cause you know, there's that warning in Bible school, don't isogeet, you know, don't insert your yeah. ideas in the text. So I think it's nece- very necessary to spend a lot of time. Yeah, we, we kind of want to maintain that fidelity to scripture so much that we kind of stay in scripture. And it's difficult for a lot of preachers. I mean, if you ask a lot of preachers, probably the part that they hate about the way that they preach is how difficult it is to get to the application. Um, whereas with Niebuhr, it's basically all application from the start. You take, you take one or two gems from scripture and you dump them into the world. 
And then you wrestle that out within the world. How, how do we see this truth within the world? How do yeah. we apply this truth in the world? How does this clarify reality? And now what are we supposed to do about it? Whereas, you know, and scripture, I'm, like a typical expository sermon begins with scripture and ends with scripture, you know? I think also a good sermonic essay, you're more likely to remember and be impacted by than you are the typical uh, expository sermon just in the sense that like if your emphasis is on the analysis of the text but there's reasons for that you know there's reasons that in a culture like ours or in a society like ours there's a lot of uh importance placed around validating your claim mm -hmm. you know and so so you're making the claim about something and so you need to prove that claim as opposed to just making it going based on trust so Niebuhr just assumes you trust them to some degree whereas I think like the conventional sermon I think I feel a lot of need to justify what I'm saying you know, yeah. I mean, I need to, I, I want to tell you why I arrived at this conclusion. And so that, that, then I could kind of weave in some application about how this could apply to life. Yeah, um, that's good. Part of that is doing work, you know, it's a different, you know, maybe a different approach. One, one of the parts is uh, it allows people to learn how to do that. You know, like, how do I go and critically look at scripture in a way that's meaningful? So mm -hmm. you're kind of doing that with them. Whereas you don't like, you know, who, who in the world uh, I don't think you get any of that from Niebuhr, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. You don't get any of that, like, how do I analyze scripture? You don't get any of that. How do I look at the scripture? How do I deduce what's being said there? He yeah, just and he, and he kind of writes it in a way, he doesn't really care if you believe this, this stuff is true or not. <laughs> like, he just says, let the, you know, the proof's in the pudding. Let, let this speak for itself, you yeah. know, as we turn to world events. You know, and yeah. uh, and it's it's very in line with his view of scripture as being correlatively authoritative, that we we see it within our experience in real life, how these things work and, yeah. and how real they actually are. And so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Maybe he's looking for maybe he's validating his claims differently than the conventional, mm -hmm. I think, pastor today who feels like they need to you know, validate what they're saying as opposed to he's saying, here, I'm going to give you an idea and go ahead and go out and challenge that in life. Yeah, the irony is, is that, you know, we, a lot of people in conservative churches feel that they have, they have to start with this idea that if of the authority of scripture, but they end up spending almost all their time trying to show how they're not straying from that authority, um, rather than kind of opening it up and letting it speak uh, to the world. Um, you, you, you become more obsessed with proving um, the, the authority of your own speech you know, uh, when, when you're using it that way. One thing that um, I, I think that we should mention, Zach keeps on using this word synthesis. Um, and these sermonic essays do take the form of a dialectic. Uh, so what he has at the beginning, at the beginning of every single chapter is a scripture, just like you'd see at the beginning when you walk into a church, there's a scripture on the back of a bulletin or up on a screen, and that's the scripture for that day. So uh, he, he begins each one of his chapters like a sermon in that way. There's a scripture at the beginning, uh, and we will read that scripture. And then he spends the rest of the time kind of reflecting on the application of that scripture and how he sees it in the world. And he does so dialectically. There's always two poles that are, there's always a tension there that the scripture is conveying. Um, and he kind of locates that tension within the scripture. And then he locates that, that tension within everyday contemporary life or in his time, his, his own contemporary life. Um, so that's an important part uh, as we go into this. Good. Now, it's also important to point out, though this point, this will become clear as we go, that beyond tragedy, this, this is written right on the eve of wor World War II. 
It was published in 1937, so just two years away from Germany invading Poland. Niebuhr is going to be saying some things as we get into this that are weirdly prophetic about what is about to happen. But it's important to understand that when he's talking about Hitler or Europe or FDR, this world he's talking about has not seen the war yet. It's it's not seen World War II yet. But just because of, you know, we might in times it might take your breath away, like how pointed and poignant his message is and how much he's describing in detail things before anything even happens. So, so yeah, so let's, let's go ahead and get started. Every week, as we go through this, we'll have uh, Aaron read our scripture. Aaron's going to be our scripture reader, just so we can all hear that sexy British accent. Indeed. <laughs> well, you'll be sadly disappointed. It's not sexy nor British. Um, uh... It's, yeah. tr- I'm going to call it transatlantic. It's, well, you know, there I, I say a transatlantic <laughs> accent. I think that's what it is. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's, let's get into it. Um, Go ahead so, and read your scripture. So the, the scripture for the first chapter as deceivers yet true comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 to 10. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience in afflictions in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil reports and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Mm. Okay, yeah. so uh, let's get into the actual uh, nuts and bolts of this. As deceivers yet true. Anybody want to explain this? So in terms of deceivers and yet true, what Niebuhr will be doing with this particular title or description of what Christian witness is about is he sets up to a dialectic between a couple of different positions that is going on for today, right? So as, as Paul does it by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, Niebuhr tries to situate this sort of thinking for the church today between rationalism, naturalism, and biblical literalism and fundamentalism. So neighbor is kind of asking, what the heck do we do with all these sorts of views of the world, of where man's going and the Bible? And so for Niebuhr, he kind of gets into the nuts and bolts in the minds of each of these sort of, let's just call them people, the naturalist or the rationalist. And he says, what do they actually think? And where am I going to go with this? And Niebuhr brings us to the conclusion that, you know, they have some truth in there. They're right about how nature functions and how it operates. But then he kind of, well, he goes to the point where they're missing something in that sort of assessment that they're not quite getting to the full picture at all. Mm-hmm. The biblical literalist is also right one thing. They take the Bible seriously, but they take it a bit too seriously. Yeah. And thus they start, pushing out the truths to be found 
amongst the naturalists and the rationalists. So in order to communicate the, tr the true uh, sort of biblical message, he has to take stuff from both sides and kind of mesh it all together. So when you're talking to a naturalist and a rationalist and they say to neighbor, hey man, you agree with me, but at this other point, you join this conclusion. So it could be seen as a deception to communicate the truth. Yeah, yeah. so if, if we take like a naturalist, a Dawkins type to his yeah. rational conclusion, we are basically just selfish machines. You know, we are just machines who just want to be fed and want to get my own way and have sex and procreate. And, you know, that's all that's all that is necessary to life is just mm -hmm. these very bare minimum mechanistic type of things. There's no meaning here. You have no meaning, Mr. Dawkins. Uh, just, yeah, cause and effect, the scientific worldview, naturalism and rationalism, they get us to understand certain truths about the world, certain facts about the world. But look at the truths that they're giving us. Look at the facts that they're giving us. It doesn't explain my personhood. It doesn't explain my, you know, my relationships. It, there's a whole bit of reality that it's missing here. Uh, if you look on the other extreme, these fundies who are all about biblical literalism, like they are choking the Bible of its actual meaning. They, they are kind of taking this whole uh, Bible and affirming its truth so much that it actually no longer depicts the reality that we know and understand. To be true. Yeah. I mean, like I was reading Job this morning and I was, cause I took a class with Dan Dyke on that when I was at CCU, it was brilliant. Um, but I, you know, a part of the course was, well, were these people actually real? Was Job a historical figure and were his friends, were they actually historical people? And I think like, if you focus too much on those things, it takes away from the reflection, the, the, the wisdom literature that it actually is. Reflections on suffering and evil and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. not, not if God and Satan actually had a conversation about this guy named Job, you know? So you kind of, you really miss out on those reflective points, the deeper points that I think, you know, really neighbors trying yeah. to get out of here. Or, or to Ken Ham, so obsessive over the first three yeah. chapters, first 11 chapters of the Bible, so obsessive over uh, proving the facticity of these things that they completely choke out the actual meaning that's, that's actually going on. They're either not mindful of it at all, or they end up just depicting some fantasy land that is not true to our experience whatsoever. It does not mesh with our understanding of the world. Uh, and to the point that faith just kind of, kind of becomes this otherworldliness where we affirm this fairy tale land, you know, of, of scriptural yeah. truths that has no correspondence to the reality that we actually know. So, so to both of them, he's saying, we have to lie to both of them. We have to lie to all of them to a degree. We have to be deceptive, uh, that we have to understand myth in a new way, in a fresh way that can speak to our experience, to where we are right now, that isn't completely flattened and reduced to a rationalism or a naturalism, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, we can't, so scripture becomes that place then where he can affirm, he thinks, the truths of this world without creating this complete otherworldliness that has nothing to do with it. But yeah. I mean, 
Well, to a degree. I mean, he does. Uh, there's an element where he thinks that the transcendence makes it, it really. I think it comes down to a transcendence. It necessitates some of this, right? Like that, but not that, a complete transcendence. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think, but like especially some of these concepts, because he goes through the doctrines, uh, some of the core doctrines of faith, and um, I think there's an element of unknowableness, right, that he does admit to, based on kind of the transcendent nature that it is. These things are beyond history, beyond reality. And so their entrance into reality necessitates some sort of communication. And that communication is necessarily um, less than what the original transcendent thing was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's, that's part of the, I mean, and that's pretty, I think standard in the, I know many camps of theology, that's a pretty standard approach to say, look, there's, there's an element of this is that is transcendent. There's an element of this that is unknowable. And any, but, but again, at the same time, Niebuhr uses that to kind of attack some of these individuals who would try to almost, yeah make theology an exclusively um, systematic or scientific endeavor, but he relates it more to art and saying, look, there, there's an element of this that is like, we want to grasp the full meaning, but it isn't graspable because of the nature of what it is. Um, yeah. Good. Let, let's, let's go to that art thing. So actually he, he ends up saying at a certain point that religion is actually more properly understood as an art. Um, what, what did you take from that? And, and maybe Aaron, you can discuss a little bit about like what he does with the painting imagery and stuff like that. What is he talking about with this stuff? I was about to ask that, that question you brought up, you stole like every single part there. <laughs> Cause the, I think Niebuhr says like art is closer to religion than science at this point, at this juncture oh, about I, how it tries to. I think he's. I think that's probably the thing I agree with most from this actual sermonic essay is that he's talking about like a fundamental problem of the transcendent communicating with the, the finite. I mean, I think that's, I think that's what's behind this is there's a sense in which in order to make that happen, there's, there's something is lost, right? The whole cannot be captured, right? If God can be captured in just a couple, you know, descriptions of him, then he's not God. Um, and so he's kind of pushing back against the person who wants to be kind of the um, Van Til style uh, epistemology, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, not, not everything in your epistemology is going to be. Well, well let's go back and explain like the procedure of like why Niebuhr talks about art then, for example, because I think you're right. He does bring up this dialect between finite and eternity. And he's kind of asked the question, well, where the hell do you get the grounding for meaning from? between these two things mm-hmm. um, and he uses art to kind of explain so if you think about like a canvas and a painter a painter will paint on a one-dimensional plane but the way in which he paints a picture is you like say you have a portrait of a person in a house you have corners in a room you have depth you have different sort of maybe flower pots pictures in of itself. You have so many different uh, things going on in this portrait that might be drawn to uh, recounts uh, a, a thing that happened in the past or how someone felt or something like that. Um, but for, for Niebuhr, especially this is the reason why it's important is that those things don't entirely capture what's going on. They're using symbols to elucidate, illustrate, you know, what is what's happened at this historical moment, so so to speak. And that's why it's really important for Niebuhr to kind of say art is sort of like religion. If you don't take it as fundamentalism, 
because the way in which the Bible functions according to neighbor is through symbols of relating historical moments to God or events like the incarnation, the virgin birth, these sorts of things, the flood, blah, 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 blah. So you have these moments that explain facts about human nature through symbols. Yeah, so it's kind of a rupture of rationalism in, in those moments. Yes. Uh, so yeah. take, for instance, uh, let's go back to this painting idea. So in reality, um, there might be two lines that are parallel. Okay. But drawing this, let's say like a sidewalk and the road, or they're actually parallel. But if somebody was, were to paint a, a painting of this picture that has the sidewalk and this road, they might actually have to bend these lines in order to give the impression of reality. Um, they can't just draw them perfectly parallel with one another in order to show like the, a curve in the road. It's going to look like, you know, these are both kind of curving and curving at, at, at different angles even in order for them to meet up. It's, or, it, it, you're, you're kind of having to lie or deceive in order to tell a deeper reality. And it's not just fitting uh, three dimensions on a one dimension canvas, but also four. He, Niebuhr also talks about how a portrait artist has to incorporate, incorporate the understanding of time, that you can't just expect somebody to sit there for five hours or seven hours the entire time that you're, you're painting them on this portrait and have the same exact facial expression. But you have to kind of lie and, and show that this is their expression. Uh, this, this expression kind of captures the totality of their personality. Um, you have to kind of suspend time to fit within this moment uh, to, to, to tell a larger story than what is allowable by one single frame. Um, so the whole object, the whole goal of an artist is, is you have to lie in order to tell a fuller understanding of reality. And he would say that, that the Bible, that myths, that miracles, these things kind of break reality. They kind of uh, suspend reality in order to tell a deeper, better story, more true story about reality. Or it's just, we're back to just A plus B equals C. You know, just simple causality is what actually explains us, that we're just a bundle of cells. There's no meaning there, but you actually have to break these laws in order to show the truth that there is meaning here. So basically, as, so basically as, as you're understanding it, and I think it really good clarity point here, the, the flood, for instance, take that, for example, is a lie. Or the Garden of Eden is a lie. But underlying it, it, the reason why it's written as maybe like you could say fact or as something that's happened in the past is to communicate something deeper that is sort of like explain something in human nature, for yes. instance. Yeah. Yeah. So we can even talk about like when, when Paul is talking in Romans about Christ is the new Adam and he talks about the first Adam, um, mm -hmm. he just has to say he's the first Adam. And automatically, this entire story runs into our mind that tells us truths about human nature, about pride, about resignation, about hiding and blaming others, you know, after we sin or something like that. 
this entire this whole story that tells us these complex stories about who we are is wrapped up in just one moment where he says the first Adam. You know, just that symbol says such a deep truth about who we are. I sort of wonder if part of what he's doing is not necessarily uh, he's kind of circumventing a historical debate. Um, instead of getting into some sort of historical, you know, whether or not the Garden of Eden exists or whether or not, yeah, whatever, whatever story you want to choose, whether or not they exist, he's, he's to some degree also saying that the only way and, you know, having looked at his other work a little bit, having read what Dorian, I think Dorian's the one that brought this up, to some degree, he's just acknowledging what it is in light of, I, I, this is the way I understood it. He's acknowledging what these stories are in light of our current understanding. So like, he's, in my mind, from what I understand, he's saying, look, from the modern mind, right, from the rational standpoint, these things are falsehoods and deceptions and so on and so forth. Are they, are they in their very nature, falsehoods and deceptions? Uh, I think that remains to be seen. But There's a mystery there, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a sense of mystery there. But he, what he's saying is, let's just start with this possibility, right? Like, let's just start with the way that our brain is going to understand them is that they are myths, that they are falsehoods or something like that, or stories, fables. Are they fables, stories in themselves? I don't think Niebuhr even wants to get into that. What he's getting at is he's like starting where this person's already thinking. He's starting where the modern mind, because he, he even says like, it's hard for him to conceptualize like what a miracle is. You know what I mean? Because he doesn't have a context for that. And so he's starting with what he can conceptualize it as from the beginning. Does that make sense? I think there's a distinction there between what Aaron said and what I said though. I think there's a distinction in the sense that like, um, he's like trying to start with where, uh, a, a great example. Um, I did a sermon, uh, uh, one that I sent to Cliff actually, and it was on, it was for somebody's funeral and it was about, you know, the fool works. The, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's from the Proverbs and it's like the fool will, I mean, the, the wise man will work the ground and reap a harvest and the fool will chase fantasies. And I said in my sermon that you have to be, that Christians recognize that you have to be both the fool and the, the, wise, be both the fool and the wise person. Because to chase Christ is to chase fantasy, right? And there will, uh, and those who chase fantasies will reap poverty. And the reality is that in chasing Christ, you may actually find yourself, right, and extending yourself to generosity and all this other stuff from a, a a worldly perspective, from a perspective which is just everybody on the earth. They look at that and be like, dude, like, I mean, we all know that Christian person who's given up a lot more than they it seems like they should, or they've dedicated their life to something in a way that is almost kind of like uncomfortable, like the lady who takes on six foster kids. Or the, uh, the person who dedicates themselves to, uh, you might look at like Mother Teresa, right? There's a certain foolishness that she embodies that is, by all intents and purposes, it's hard to like separate that, the feeling that she's a fool from what she's actually doing, right? Like, but I'm not saying she actually is a fool. The truth of the matter might be that she is actually wise beyond all reason. But in this life, she's, in my mind, like, like, like when, I look at, when I look at that situation, my brain is automatically like, wow, that seems like a foolish decision. Um, what, it seems like poverty. So what you want to nail down here, and I, and I think this is wonderful, by the way, because I think that Aaron um, is, uh, has a predisposition towards a more of a rationalism or a, a naturalism. We are the dialectic. Um, I, that's what I'm saying, is that I, and, and you, you, Zach, definitely have more of a predisposition toward believing the, the truth of scripture of these actual events um and so it's i guess left up to me to try to get you guys to get along but you're both saying the same thing but on your own terms um and what allows you to i guess take a step into niebuhr 
Um, so, so for Aaron, he's going to be focusing on, okay, Niebuhr is recognizing these things aren't real, you know, um, the, and he's maybe taking that leap. Um, you, Zach, want to say, but, but Aaron would say, but that's still like how he's negotiating it in a way that I can understand the impact of myths in my life. Um, but what you're hearing, Zach, is he's really just putting a question mark on the actual events. No, he's just, I think he's just working with the terms that are available. Like the, the idea of, um, even the idea of a miracle nowadays is like an arbitrary term. Like it doesn't mean, it's a meaningless term to most people because they have not, they have not, they have no like conception of what that is. So you have to start with something else. You have to start with like this foolishness, right? Is like behind this foolishness is a truth. You know what I mean? Does that, does that make sense? Am I, am I? Yeah, absolutely. But the foolishness is something that you want to pin, pin down is that from the perspective of a naturalist or a, or a rationalist, it is foolish. Yeah. <clears throat> it is a lie from their perspective. It yeah. is a deception yeah. from their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think let's, let, we should nail that down. We should actually nail down both parts is that Niebuhr isn't necessarily affirming any miracle here yeah, in reality. I, I don't, I don't see Niebuhr here and maybe I'm incorrect, but I don't see Niebuhr as a, like a Jungian symbology guy. Like, I don't think that, I mean, I think that he's obviously influenced by that train of thought, but I don't think that he's taking the stories of the Bible and then just saying like, Hey, like we just need to look at the, the myth behind them. I don't think he's, he's making that sweeping claim about scripture, but maybe I'm incorrect. Um, well, I mean, trying to do something know, else. The thing is, and I, 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 I get where you're going because I, th I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Zach, it seems like you want to preserve something in Niebuhr that he might actually think the stories are real. And just as a side note, I reject your characterization, McCliff. 100%. Reject away, my friend. I'm going to beat you up next time I see you. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, but I mean, the, the issue I think you have on your interpretation, Zach, is that the end, when you get down to the, the this particular essay, Niebuhr, it seems like he's saying none of this stuff is true. And you kind of get to the part where Corner West, as Cliff has kind of quoted him a few times in that sort of um, fake interview that Corner West has with yeah. Niebuhr, like, but Niebuhr, is God real? Right. And Niebuhr just says, God is this necessary, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it, the, I think your interpretation, if I'm, if I'm characterizing you correctly as trying to preserve something in Niebuhr that he might actually believe these things as as happening in history um it just seems it's kind of hard to believe that part of neighbor with what he says in this essay so i'm saying but so and, i got a so, quote what what i what i just want to say real quick is i think that we're getting hung up on the exact thing neighbor doesn't want us to get hung up on <laughs> Okay. Well, no, but and that's why he's trying to sidestep a lot of this stuff. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. we do get hung up on, well, does he, instead of saying, well, did the resurrection actually happen? We're saying, well, does Niebuhr actually believe that it happened? So we're, we're still kind of finding a way to not get to his deeper meaning. No, but see, I think actually, yeah. I, I would say that we're not doing, like, I, I'm not doing that. I, I just think that there's a way to understand Niebuhr's conception of these, uh, of what he's saying in a more, there's a more subtle thing going on here. So there's a quote that we read for when we were reading Dorian's thing that I think is a really good example of what I'm talking about. He says this, I do not know how it is possible to believe in anything pertaining to God and eternity, and eternity literally. 
Um, but yet he goes on later to say, <clears throat> in response to Tillich's accusation, um, he says, if it is supernaturalistic to affirm that the faith discerns the key to specific meaning above the categories of philosophy, ontological and epistemological, then I must plead guilty of being a supernaturalist. The whole of the Bible is an exposition of this kind of supernaturalism. If we are embarrassed by this and try to interpret the Bible, the biblical religion in other terms, when we end up, we end in changing the very character of the Christian faith. So the things that I'm trying to maintain here is that on the one hand, he's a, he's a, he's a skeptic. Like that's his, his predisposition. Um, and so I think that as an individual, he comes to these things and it's hard for him to conceptualize them as anything beyond a myth. Right. And I think that's the modern situation. Like, when I talk about scripture, I have to begin by just saying like, Hey, like this, this is written like a myth. It is a myth. Right. And like the meaning of the story is, has some intense significance, but I guess that does, does that make sense of my, what I'm, where I'm going with this tracking with you guys? I think with neighbor, the proof is always in the pudding. I think you get into this stuff and I'm going to, hopefully we can get there. We're running out of time here. Um, but there's a part in the incarnation where I think you can circle back and just based upon this kind of from the side rationalization of what's going on with the incarnation and how we do it every day. Uh, there's a way to kind of circle back around and be like, Oh, the incarnation is completely possible. Uh, so I think that there is a way to, you kind of have to take the bait first though. You have to get into it and you can't start from the position that these are absolutely real um, I, you know, I can't think or reason beyond first affirming the truth of this, or you're going to miss the entire point of the myths. Um, but I think that once you get into it and start understanding the way that he's talking about these myths and, and kind of what the truths are contained within these myths, then they can, they do have a way of, of affirming, um, and, and some mysterious way, those, those myths, at the can end you, of the day. Can you get into that a bit with, with the incarnation? Maybe we should just yeah. focus on that. Might be a good example as a case study. Yeah, yeah, well, I'd like to catch our audience up just real quickly on what he does at the very beginning with just creation, okay? Yeah, um, yeah. So what is, he makes the argument, what is rational about nature? If you just take the blunt, you know, description of what nature is, cause and effect, you know, uh, this species begets this species and so on and so forth, you know, uh, you know, uh, natural selection and the whole lot. Uh, there's no meaning there. Okay. We could just, you know, close the book on finding any meaning whatsoever in life. If that's all that we are is just cells vying for, you know, survival in a harsh world. Mm -hmm. If that's all that there is to life, then there is no meaning to life. Uh, and so with that, and he goes into Aristotle, Ar he says like Aristotle and science can only understand that endless chain of causality. Um, although Aristotle does talk about first philosophy and his metaphysics, and, but we won't get into that, but he does affirm some stopping point there to kind of try to understand the why of it all. But creation to Niebuhr introduces meaning into the process because now there is a God who intends something uh, with this world. And this God intends something with this world that's different, that precedes 
and to a degree, if you believe it, supersedes our mindless natural impulses. There's something, once you affirm creation, there is a meaning that rises above just the natural state. So in a way, creation myths allow us to become more human. Um, it allows us to understand the telos and the, the purpose, the point of it all, so that we can then form relationships and so on and so forth and have ethics and morality and so on. So that's what he does with creation. Then he does a similar thing with the fall. And this is, whenever we go through Nature and Destiny of Man, what he does here with the fall, you could basically balloon this out to kind of the whole first book of Nature and Destiny of Man. Um, what Basically, what is rational? He go, you know, If we're telling the air quote, quote unquote, truth about what is rational, it's that evil is basically either just a defect of nature or it's complete, or it's just ignorance. The naturalist will say evil emerges from nature because that's all there is to a naturalist. There's only nature. So evil has to necessarily come from nature. So it's from nature, but then they'll say, you know, because nature is good, they'll say, well, it must be some kind of natural defect. So evil is some kind of natural defect. Lewis Mumford, who's a naturalist, he describes evil as almost like a malfunctioning intellect among humans that was caused by some kind of wrong turn we took in our evolutionary chain. And Nietzsche does something similar, by the way. Everything comes from nature, and we, but, but we've kind of corrupted it somehow with this new way of thinking. Um, the rationalists will say that evil is a product of ignorance. And this is where we get John Dewey's kind of idea of cultural lag. We just need education. Education is the silver bullet. We educate more people. We educate those people out in the rural areas or, or wherever. We educate the people in third world countries. And you will see how evil just disappears, you know. But uh, there's a great uh, there's a great lecture Niebuhr gives. It's actually one of the very few lectures you can find online of Niebuhr. Um, but he says something, he's talking about Germany leading up to World War II, looking back on Germany before World War II. And Niebuhr makes the point, he said, there was more knowledge in Germany pre-World War II. There's more knowledge per square head than any country in the world. So basically, these were the smartest people in the world in Germany. And it, you see how their, where their rationality got them, you know that the rationality is not a silver bu uh, bullet. So to both na the naturalists and the rationalists, Niebuhr says that the biblical myth of the fall actually explains more about the way evil emerges. Let me read something real quick. He says, in all of these accounts, so naturalism, rationalism, boiling everything down to just, you know, our mind, our transcendence, or bo boiling everything down to just nature, he says, in all of these accounts, the essential point in the nature of human evil is missed, namely that it arises from the very freedom of, of reason with which man is endowed. So I, I might have brought this up before, but in my anthropology class that I teach every once in a while at Mount St. Joe, uh, I have them read both Oedipus and the creation myth, or I'm sorry, and the myth of the fall, Adam and Eve. And what I hope, what I kind of help bring them to is the evil is not some predisposition that we're bound to by fate, like the story of Oedipus. We're not slaves to fate, but I show them this very different myth of the garden, um, which is still written by ancient peoples, you know, and they are locating 
evil within the human being's own freedom, that we bring it upon ourselves, that we aren't some pathetic creatures, uh, you know, that are being toyed with like we're puppets of the gods. No, we do this to ourselves. There's an irony to our misery where we are behind it all. Um, oh, and God. this this freedom that's at the center of the way the evil exists is what sets the biblical myth apart from everything else, is that we cause our own suffering. We cause our own pain. We cause our own evil. Uh, you get rid of this and you take the approach of the naturalist that, oh, evil is just this necessary thing that exists as a natural defect. You can't keep these things from happening. Uh, you can try to correct it once you see it, but there's nothing you can do. You are just a slave to evil then. Uh, the rationalist is just some kind of cultural lag or it's some kind of ignorance. Once we cure the ignorance, then everything's okay. That's proven to not be true at all. But Niebuhr locates it within our own freedom. So by telling this lie of this creation myth, or I'm sorry, of this, the fall, which to the naturalists, it's nuts. To the rationalists, it's even crazier. But if we can occupy this space of mythicism, of this, uh, of this truth that is lying in order to tell the truth, it's, that, it's like that painting. It doesn't show the parallel lines where they're supposed to be parallel lines. It bends them. It changes the angles. It, it cuts reality and edits it in a way that makes more truth of the broader scope, of the broader story of what's actually going on. So I think that's probably a place where Aaron and I, where I what I was trying to make a distinction of is a little bit of a distinction of it, is that Niebuhr is saying, you know, you might, for example, and maybe he doesn't say this exactly, but I'm going to use it as an example. You might say like the, the creation story didn't happen. It's all a lie, everything, yada, yada. But what Niebuhr is actually saying is that there's something even more substantial than that story itself behind it. Mm -hmm. So there is something of great substance behind that story whether it's a story historically, whatever, but there's something of great, tremendous, tremendous substance. Whereas some, I think a lot of people would say, when you strip away the history, you're stripping, you're stripping away the substance uh, that is behind it. Um, and I think it's quite the opposite. I think that he's saying that there's actually, it's, it's almost like uh, Tim Keller will say, uh, he, he said this in a sermon before um, that, uh, some people will ask, like, do you believe in hell? And he'll be like, or, or do you believe that there's fire in hell? And he'll be like, no. But I think it, it's representative of something far worse. The idea being, right, that like, yes, this is some sort of symbology. This is a, de a, a deception yet true in, the sen in that sense. But it is at the same time uh, speaking to something with a lot more substance. Or, or a lot worse substance than that. In it's that all about the substance. There's so much more substance. Nature and Destiny of Man is, I keep on going on and on about it. I think that we do need to read it soonish. Um, but it's really all about showing the best we got, the best we got with modern philosophy. And we could even bridge this into postmodern philosophy. The best we got are these very simplistic ways that we understand human nature and the self these very simplistic ways that we understand uh, the problems that we face, where we are never that far away from salvation. And we'll get to that, uh, that part here in a second, because that's an important part. We're never that far away from salvation. It's just, oh, if we just can get a little bit smarter. Oh, if we can just wake up the, 
the laborers more to the injustices of the bourgeoisie. You know, oh, if, if we can just do this or that, then we can solve our deepest problems. But Niebuhr saying no, in both our height and our depth, in both our reason and in our nature, we sin in both directions, in all directions. We find a way to sin. Um, and we need some kind of a unifying governing center that can instruct us of the way that we sin and the way that evil occurs. And the best one we know of is the garden. That's the, that is the best way. And this is also going to go into um, his resolutions of, you know, atonement theory. And, the, you know, what he's going to ask the question, like, these modern people don't even need saved in this way. They don't need a sa salvation for themselves because they locate evil outside of themselves. Evil is some kind of defect that they don't have. Evil is out there somewhere. Um, or it's just a necessary thing. It's not something that I can change. It's not something that arises from within my own freedom. So, uh, so yeah, absolutely. Like these are full of substance. Like it's, it's to the point where Niebuhr's all but saying, we better start affirming this, these myths, whether you actually believe in it or not, you need to start affirming these things because Western civilization is dependent on it. Um, this is the argument he makes in world, during World War II. The funny thing about this as well is in Nature and Destiny Man, I believe in chapter three or four, Niebuhr points out um, the, the issue modern people take with the biblical stories isn't the unbelievability yeah. of, say, the fall, the atonement, creation. It's the relevance to their own lives. Yes. And so on page 94, uh, and on the chapter on um, the easy conscious oh. of modern man, uh, Niebuhr says, and I quote, the whole Christian drama of salvation is rejected ostensibly because of the incredible character of the myths of creation, fall, atonement, etc., in which it is expressed. Mm -hmm. But the typical modern is actually more certain of the complete irrelevance of these doctrines than of their incredibility. He is naturally not inclined to dubious religious myths, take dubious religious myths seriously, since he finds no relation between the ethos which informs them and his own sense of security and complacency. The sense of guilt expressed in them is, is to him a mere vestigial remnant of primitive fears of higher powers of which he is happily emancipated. The sense of sin is, in the phrase, of a particularly vapid modern social scientist, a psychopathic aspect of adolescent mentality. Yes. So, I mean, so, in, that sentence, in, that, in that statement, he somewhat contradicts himself though, because in, there is an element to which the unbelievability of those statements leads people, leads to a belief that they're irrelevant to their life. So like one of the things I think that in Niebuhr's work, I think actually proves that to some degree because Sorry, sorry, sorry. His ability to make them relevant, I think, is what makes his work really powerful. Like, so he takes these things that seem um, unbelievable, but he says, hey, they actually have quite a bit of relevance to your life. And that has a huge influence and draw on people. Does that make it sense? It actually allow it almost kind of gives people permission to believe the actual thing. Yeah. 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 I think I see it in the Augustinian sort of version of faith as well. So, I mean, for a lot of people in Christians, they're like Christian apologists. Um, James K. Smith, and who's afraid of postmodernism, really brings this up, that Christian apologists are like presuppositionalists who 
take the fact that you have to line up Christianity in terms of ra- rationality to make sense of it. But for Augustine, faith seeks understanding. So faith is the prerequisite. It's mm-hmm. a sort of orientation of thought and of character that precedes you to believe something. So I think for Niebuhr, he kind of functions in the same way. So I don't know if it's a contradiction. So, so many people will reject like six day creation literalism because of the sciencey stuff behind it. But maybe according to Niebuhr, the first reason they reject it is because of the irrelevance of it. Mm. I don't need to be saved. I'm not sinful. Therefore, and in addition to that, I don't accept the science of this stuff. I don't know. It might be a bit more lucid than that, but I don't know. What do you, well, what do you I, guys? Think? No, I think I think you're right. Like, I don't see the contradiction here. I see. I do see that Niebuhr happens to make it easier for faith, and maybe that's his intention all, all along. But he's very sneaky in the way that he does it. I love yeah. the way that you just introduced this topic with James K. Smith about saying kind of faith. You know, that it's about faith seeking understanding. Um, that it's about kind of character, you know, that character that is derived from biblical truths, that, that seeking understanding is actually the, the main truth going on here. Niebuhr seems to be kind of fast tracking that whole experience of character with, look, I see that you're, you're not getting, like, I see that you're not believing in the virgin birth. I see that you're not believing in resurrection. I see you're not believing in these things. Let's start with the character part. You can let me explain to you why the character that is being developed within scripture, how scripture wants you to see yourself and relate to yourself and understand what kind of person you should be. Let's start there. And then let's see how you can then turn around and view scripture again. Um, Yeah, that's that's a wonderful way of putting it, Aaron. Good. Now, I had a similar, uh, I almost called it scripture. I had a similar quote to what Aaron was just talking about. Now, remember, Beyond Tragedy comes right before he starts the Gifford Lectures, which would become Nature and Destiny of Man. So this is actually a very similar statement, but I think it's worth noting. He says, this is on page 18 of Beyond Tragedy. He says, the reason for this simple rejection of the Christian drama of salvation lies in the modern conception of human nature rather than any rejection of the theological absurdities attached to the idea of Christ's atoning death. Modern man does not regard life as tragic. He thinks that history is the record of the progressive triumph of good over evil. He does not recognize the simple but profound truth that man's life remains self-contradictory in its sin, no matter how high human culture rises. That the highest expression of human spirituality, therefore, contains also the subtlest form of human sin so what he's saying here is naturalism you still can't find out the complexity of what uh, of of what uh sin is and what evil is actually in the world rationalists you can't do it either now i get that that these that these stories these miracles are not palatable to your um 20th century or 20 now 21st century sens- sensibilities Uh, But you have to extend that. You have to suspend your doubts for a second to get to the nub of what is actually going on here. And you can't tell these stories. You can't get to this character building without accepting the ways that those myths and miracles break reality. So this is and this is the I guess the hard thing and more maybe more um, applicable question 
to you guys, right? I mean, you guys are both more in church context than I am, and I'm about to be hopefully in the next few months. But how do you get, you're using the language of you have to suspend judgment to do this. So how do you like present that in a church? Like, how do you talk about suspending judgment in an age where we're on the defensive does that make sense is well i don't think i don't think with parishioners you have to ask them to suspend judgment because most of them already kind of come in knowing the relevance knowing that either miracles happen or they already kind of uphold scripture as being true to some degree so really you just have to start preaching. You have to start preaching the dialectic, preaching about these things in a meaningful way like Niebuhr does. I see. So I, like, I don't feel the need ever when I'm preaching on Genesis to be like, oh, this is true by the way, you know, <laughs> or I, I don't know. They are like, or you need to suspend your judgment on whether this is true or not. Yeah. I never have that talk. I just kind of start wherever they are and just start yeah. talking about not Ken Ham. And I start talking about what does this, what does creation actually tell us about what we're doing here? And what does God's image mean? Um, what, yeah, think, what are the nuggets here that we need to take and apply? I think there's a tremendous irony in the fact that I think that Niebuhr does a better job of explaining what Genesis one through three are about. And he takes a uh, extremely opposite end view of their historicity from like a Ken Ham, who I think spends an exorbitant amount of time on on those texts, but doesn't really come away with the same meaning that I think is there. Yeah, so it's a great irony, you know. Yeah, it is. And man, um, gosh, what's the book? Uh, the World Before Genesis One. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know, about. Oh, the guy from Wheaton, I think. Yeah. yeah. I just read. I just read the books. Uh, I've read them for. I, I, I preached on. Uh, the the flood he did a book on the flood also Walton well yeah John Walton yeah he does he he just does such a great job of well first he he does ask people to kind of he does have kind of a moment where he asks people to suspend you know um, the facticity and that type of thing he has a good like first opening chapter on that type of thing and then but then he launches into why this is relevant Um, they're really asking the question um, when Moses is writing this, the main question—they're not—they're not asking the same question that New- that uh, Newton's asking. You know, when he's writing Principia, um, they're asking, "How do I fit in this place? We just left Egypt. Um, we are just slaves. Um, what do we do now? Like, how do we fit into this world? You know." And once you begin with that starting point, you don't need all these other things about like what is. How, you know, God isn't writing a textbook here about to tell, explain to us physics. He's answering this question of how do you fit in here? Yeah. You know? And I think it's an extremely effective way for people to catch on to, I guess, a, a better way to frame this is not calling it myth, but a narrative. People see themselves within these narratives. Yeah. 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 So I, I had another point. Um, the In Nature and Destiny of Man, he also... He, he talks a lot about the gods of modernity. The gods of modernity, he calls them nature and reason. So he does a similar thing that he's doing now. And he says that one always makes one dominant. Somebody always, one of the views always makes one dominant and the other subordinate. Either our rational nature, 
um, is dominant and we subordinate our natural uh, natural side, our animalistic side, and we need to conform our nature more to our reason type of thing. Or it goes the other way that we are we view ourselves primarily as natural. We are animals primarily, and we are trying to uh, conform our reason to the, to our organic nature or our uh, you know kind of like Nietzsche, like conform our reason to our animalistic to the brute in us type of thing. Uh, so he says the one, you know, somebody always makes one dominant and the other subordinate. And, and so the problems of life, evil in the world is always too easily correctable. You always start, you always start seeing yourself in the place where you always want to end up. Oh, I am, I come in with this naturalistic view. The goal is to become more naturalistic. Oh, that's not too difficult. Um, so modern humanity doesn't realize that it sins both in its height and its reason and sins in the depths of its nature, you know, and, but Christianity, the, like the, the Judeo-Christian beginning creates this myth that allows us to see both at the same time and how we sin both in our nature and in our, um, in our reason as well. Oh, and it, I think one of the things I like about this is it actually speaks to human experience to some degree. We do this somewhat, you know, I do, I, I was very, I got really far into a counseling degree while I was working on my MDiv, I was doing a dual degree. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, talking about counseling, talking about counseling, sitting in counseling classes. And one of the things they talked about was, I remember this class distinctly, we were talking about uh, one of the best ways to describe how we talk about our past is that we talk about it in terms of myths. Like we make up myths to explain some of our present behavior when in, and this is probably where it disconnects from the analogy disconnects from the biblical example is that we often make these myths up and they have nothing to do with actually why we, the behavior is exhibited. And so it's like hard for me to go around and like, listen to people tell these myths about themselves all the time. Mm-hmm. I know that's what's happening now, you know, and it's like, I can't unsee that. But at the same time, it's like the way that they've learned to explain what their behavior, you know what I mean? They've learned to explain their behavior in light of this myth about themselves. Um, and so in one sense, they're telling you the truth. They're telling you something about themselves that is very true, but they're also, the origin is not necessarily related to what they're actually telling you. Um, yeah, and there's debate about that also. You know, it's interesting because I, I think what modern psychology is kind of picking up on is something that, that we used to do much better um, back in the olden days is that we always tell stories about ourselves. That's how we understand ourselves within these myths within these stories. Um, and we used to be really, we used to see ourselves more within a larger stories, um, like within ancient mythologies and, uh, and uh, the, the, the story of Israel, you know, they would understand themselves as being kind of within these larger stories. Uh, but today, I mean, either you guys like grow up kind of seeing yourself as being with like a character in your own movie type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> or am I just like, Admitting no, no. something really weird here. It's not like immediately myself like leaving the grocery store like to a soundtrack. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's why we love movies so much. Is because it's it's something really identifiable, you know, to the way that we already think about identity. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's interesting. Uh, one brief point, and then we got we got to wrap up here in a second. We got to cap it off with the, the kind of final two major points that he makes about atonement and second coming. And I would say that both of them are kind of linked. So I'm going to read one um, part on atonement. 
uh, and then this is going to link back up with Second Coming. And this is also the namesake of the book. So if you missed it, if I know that we all read this before, and if we if we missed it before, where the Beyond Tragedy name comes from, it comes from these sections. Okay. So he says, this is on page twenty. Most profoundly, the atonement of Christ is a revelation of what life actually is. It is tragic from the standpoint of human striving. We're all going to die, by the way. That's me talking. That's not from the quote. It's tragic. It's Job. It's all Job. Life is. Human striving, back into the quote, human striving can do no better than the Roman law and the Hebraic religion. So he's seeing both the Hebraic religion, Pharisees and Sadducees and the whole lot, and the Roman law as being the pinnacle of what human beings are striving for. Both the highest of their kind, through which the Lord was crucified, and they still killed perfection. Yet this crucifixion becomes the revelation of that in human history, which transcends human striving. And without this revelation, that which is beyond tragedy in life could not have been apprehended. So what he's saying, he makes this point earlier. He says that uh, it is an actual fact that human life, which is always threatened and periodically engulfed by the evil which human sin creates, is also marvelously redeemed by the transmutation of evil into good. And the atonement is the ultimate statement of how you can turn goodness, you can turn evil into goodness. Okay, it's the ultimate expression of that, that even in this death, um, this brutal murder by these powers that we're all striving to become, there's still a way that that is transmuted, that that evil is transmuted into good. And he says, and without this revelation, that which is beyond tragedy in life could not have been apprehended. So we have to start with this point of atonement, of this belief that goodness can come from evil, that there is something beyond tragedy in this life. Um, and he says, and he concludes, without the cross, men are beguiled by what is good in human existence into a false optimism and by what is tragic into despair. So we'll either take the, the highness of the Roman law and we'll run with it and be like, oh, this is so great and ignore the part where we're killing this man, um, just naivety. Or we'll let that tragedy of the cross speak to us about the utter despair. But we have to believe in atonement that goodness can come from this. Any thoughts about that? Well, I think you provide a lot of clarity for what he was trying to say. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this gets at the heart of not just this book, but I think at the heart of what Niebuhr is trying to do in his <clears throat> theological work, you know, as I've encountered it, you know, trying to get people to see you have to go beyond tragedy. You know, you have to go beyond um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to hear more about what you, how you think this relates to being a deceiver yet true. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like, you know, at the same time, like, I, I think what you had to say was, <clears throat> or what Niebuhr has to say that you're kind of analyzing here is very compelling. But I also want to know how does this relate? Like, I, I, I'm struggling a little bit to see how because it relates being a deceiver, but true. we're deceivers because we say the death of a man on a cross, like all the other thieves, is in some way redemptive of all of sin in human history. That is the deception from the perspective of the rationalists or the naturalist. Like how can the debt, how can this one man dying possibly turn into anything good? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But it tells a deeper truth about how 
meaning must derive. Meaning has to come from a place where you're in the depths of complete meaninglessness, of despair, of nothing good ever happening from this wretched world. Belief in the atonement is the ultimate refusal of that world and saying, no, we must crawl beyond this tragedy and into redemption, the possibility of goodness still existing in this world of death. Does that make sense? So the, the deception is the atonement. Yeah. No, I get it now. Yeah, definitely. I, I see. But it's telling us something deeper and truer yeah. about the meaning of existence, you know, that despite the fact that we're all going to die, and I think I'd have to there's something that, that extends beyond this tragic life. I'd have to I'd have to ponder that in light of what you just said. I need some time. You know what I mean? It's like one of those things. It's like, well, what he does with the second coming might help contextualize it a bit more. Yeah. So he says that the second coming is the doctrine which distinguishes Christianity from both naturalistic utopianism and from Hellenistic otherworldliness. So the second coming is the doctrine that gives us hope without optimism and makes us critical without sliding into a cynical pessimism. So this hope that Christ is returning and he's going to fulfill our actions here in this world gives ultimate meaning to our striving, but it gives us ultimate meaning in a way that doesn't put it all on us to bring about the kingdom here now. Um, because with contained within the hope of second coming is the belief that only Christ is going to is going to bring about this utopianism. Only Christ is going to bring about the kingdom ultimately. Like he says, and this is what he covers in the whole second section, the whole second book of Nature and Destiny of Man. Um, one, of, one of the great quotes from that is he says, like Moses, all men must die outside the promised land. Freaking love that quote. Um, all humans like Moses must die outside the promised land. It's the, the second coming is this admission that we will not usher in utopianism here, but it's so it leaves us to be critical, you know, of what we, of the things that we are creating here. But also on the other side of it, uh, it doesn't make us critical to the point that we are sliding into a cynical pessimism. There is redemption to be had here. So, but I think that one of the differences between this and the original, uh, this idea of creation, this story of creation, that has to be different is <clears throat> there actually has to be a for that to be true both in the deceivers yet true sense and in the, the like historical sense there actually has to be a moment in history when that actually happens yes there has to be a moment where where that comes about we have to really believe it well but not even just really believe it but <clears throat> I, I mean i guess you could say taking that sense that you it helps us to make sense of the world by believing it, but it actually has to come about. I think, I mean, I guess not to render that the belief in that. But I think the, the, what, what he's afraid of is the point that the second coming becomes an absolute knowledge, like an absolute thing that, that happens. We can do all kinds of bad things with that. You know, um, there has to, there has to be an arm's length that he's calling faith there. Uh, that isn't going to turn the second coming into kind of what the crazies were doing, you know, um, in his time and in our own. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, and I agree with that to, to that sense. I totally agree with that. I just think it in some ways differs, right? Um, yeah. Like, so you're still wanting him to say this is something that actually has to happen. 
Yeah, I think will happen for for what he wants. I mean, I guess not for 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 people's application to their life today. It doesn't have to be something that happens in history, but for that to be true, for for people to like, if they should believe in it. I think it's an important question, but maybe that's not the question. But, talking. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's totally concerned with this has to happen. I think that he's more concerned. With, it's kind of like that William James thing. I don't care what actually is true in your belief system, what's actually going to happen. I care about what it turns you into be, you know, what it makes you. Yeah. And people who have the second coming, who believe that their action will be completed, that their yeah. sins will be overturned. Uh, they have a way about them where they can have hope that changes the way that they live, that doesn't just slide them into a utopianism. And it doesn't just, you know, make them, you know, slide into a cynical uh, despair either. But it's something that can maintain us within that special place where we have meaning in our lives, but not totalizing meaning. So I... I think that this this is a tug of war. I'm fully anticipating this is a tug of war that we're going to have all throughout this podcast of kind of having these discussions of, yes, but does he really believe? And and this thing has to be true. And I think to a degree, I would say that we have to believe this is true. You know, and I would even say personally, I believe it's true, you know, that Jesus is returning. But what he's getting at the most important nub here is what kind of person this is turning us into. If we just believe in a pure optimism or pessimism, that's going to turn us into the wrong people. But the second coming provides this perfect layer of meaning that allows us to strive without uh, without thinking we can totally bring it about. Well, maybe that's the important part is that he is more focused on what it makes you into than what it, what it is. You know what I mean? I, mean, I think maybe the big distinction here that we need to... Um, kind of be reminded of as we look through it yeah yeah i agree that's something that maybe we should return because we can guarantee that our audience is going to constantly be returning to it as well like is this true yeah so i yeah so i guess the point coming full circle around again to the tragic element of life i think the common thread among all these extreme interpretations be it rationalist naturalist or biblical literalism is that they don't have a good conception of the tragic elements of human life, even Christians, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a big issue. So I guess I'm trying to, I'm failing to see exactly how myth or viewing these through the lens of myth provides us with the sense of tragic if, we, if we're still being stumped up on if the things actually happen or not. If we just take it to Niebuhr's sort of overall message that there is something much deeper going on in these stories, then I see how we get to the tragic elements a bit better because um, we're less concerned about historicity and more about you know how these affect our character, how they affect the way we think about who we are, where we're going, and where we are at the moment. So yeah, I, I think that... Maybe that might be the best way to end this section is that redoubling down on what Niebuhr was trying to get at here is that we have to really think that we were all telling ourselves stories about who we are and where we're going. And in more of the postmodern sense, even the rationalists and naturalists have their own myths about what it means to be human and where we're going. So the the Niebuhr's use of myths shouldn't necessarily be seen as a sort of cop-out 
or a negative thing for Christianity, but just an omission of what we're all doing. Yeah. Right. So what I constantly come back to with neighbor is, okay, let's remember what faith is. Yeah. That faith has a degree of doubt in it already or a degree of not knowing completely. And with everything that, that we're examining, there has to be space there, I guess, for, uh, for us to allow these, these stories to have an, we have, we have, we have to have a certain arm's length to these stories in order for their meaning to actually be absorbed into the way that we think. Um, and if we are going around with a stranglehold on scripture or with a stranglehold on the way that nature absolutely is, uh, with a stranglehold on the way that, you know, we think that rationality or ideal ideology works or something like that, um, then we're going to, you know, choke off all the meaning that there is there. But if we relax that and we, we can start to understand the way that we, some of these stories that we tell about ourselves, um, whether they're relevant or not. And what we find in Niebuhr is actually the Bible supplies some good stories about ourselves um, that can tell very spooky almost. It's spooky how true these stories are about the way we live and the way that we understand ourselves and the way that we fail. Um, that they're so spooky that it makes you think, gosh, are these true? You know? Um, yeah. So that's where I think that Niebuhr takes us to and, and wants to leave us. And I love Niebuhr because then I can kind of inject, you know, some N.T. Wright or, you know, some other people. There's space in, in some Karl Barth, some different people in here to help me deal with the fa facticity or the, the reality of what's going on. Um, but it can always be cradled by this Niburian mythos, you know, that is kind of indifferent about whether or not things are actually true or not. It's really just about what we believe. Mm -hmm. Any last words, Zach? No, I think that's, I think what you had to say was pretty good way to end it. All right. Well, that about does it for this episode, this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure you like and subscribe. Leave us a good rating on whatever platform you're using. And we would really appreciate a review if you're enjoying it and, and have the time. Follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news updates and uh, a brilliant Neighbor quote here or there throughout the week. Thank you all again so much. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.